The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to you this morning in the name of Jesus. And I believe we have some visitors here. We've got some, I think, OC grads or some, okay, some young marrieds and singles and kind of an assortment here visiting. I want to welcome you guys, so I, I hope I get a chance to meet you. And we've also, I believe, got Kelly and Cassidy and Natalie Shrek somewhere here. So welcome to you back there. Thank you so much for being with us, the Hicksons. It's awesome to celebrate you guys today as well. Uh, we're continuing in our sermon series called Psalms, the Seasons of Life, and we're going to be doing that in another text of disorientation this morning, and that text is Psalm chapter 13. So if you want to turn over in your Bibles or your smartphones or follow along on the screen, I'm going to go ahead and read our text as we begin together. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you now, and we thank you for being so good to us. God, you have dealt bountifully with us, and we rejoice in your salvation this morning. God, I ask that you would teach us through your word how to pray, teach us how to have faith and how to live and move and have our being in you. I ask God for the gift of preaching. I ask for your Holy Spirit to dwell among us, for your presence to be evident, and for us to see your face and know your steadfast love. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. It started as a day of orientation. Uh, It was August 31st, 1985, and my young married parents had just purchased their very first home in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a home that I would pretty quickly be born into. And on that day, a couple of their best couple friends from church, Pam and Wade Craig, had come to help them move into the house. And so they had done all the work and they had put the final piece of furniture in its final resting place in the house and they went on out to celebrate. And to celebrate, they went out to Wall Lake uh, because Wade loved water skiing more than anybody that they knew. 
And so they thought, all right, we'll all pile into our 23-foot Mercury cabin cruiser, and we'll head out onto Wall Lake. And so Pam and Wade and my mom and dad and my mom's parents piled into the boat, and they headed out to the water. And Wade was the first one to don the water skis and jump in the water, and my dad began to pull him around the lake. And about 10 minutes into it, though, uh, he let go and dropped into the water. And it was quite uncharacteristic for somebody who loves water skiing. That's not even really that long to ski. And so my dad pulls around, and they get him in the boat, and clearly something is very wrong. Uh, Wade is, is deeply in pain. He's kind of staggering into the boat, and he asks for some aspirin, and even more uncharacteristically, asks to be able to go home. And so he, he kind of lays his head on Pam, his wife's shoulder, and they begin to head towards the shore. And as they're getting closer to the shore, it's becoming evident that Wade is doing worse and worse. And eventually they have to carry him out of the boat and lay him on the shore. And my dad runs off. This is before cell phones. So he, he calls 911 in a nearby house. And the ambulance comes and takes Wade. And they follow to the hospital. And before long, the doctor comes out and tells Pam and my mom and my dad that Wade has died. It was a brain aneurysm. He was 24 years old. And about a month after that, his widow Pam lost her father to cancer. And it's painful to say it, but sometimes the seasons of life are like that. Sometimes you go from a moment of complete, uncomplicated, jubilant orientation. When everything in your world feels right and where it needs to be. And in the very next moment, dark clouds of disorientation settle in like a thick fog. You go from your best friend moving you into your brand new house to cradling his head on the shore with sirens in the distance. And one of the lessons I think we're learning from the book of Psalms is that Scripture speaks to the whole breadth of human experience, even the tragic. And it must we need to be able to have those psalms of orientation celebrating the joys of, of the equilibrium of life that we experience in our lives. And we need the psalms of new orientation, psalms of chanting the victory and delivery that God brings about for us. But we also desperately need the psalms of disorientation. Uh, this past week, as you know, a couple of pretty public figures very tragically took their own lives. And there's no shortage of reminders, but weeks like this past one do highlight in a painful way that suffering and angst that is in all of us and in our world. And it's these kind of weeks that remind us that we need to be able to open up Scripture and see our pain reflected, to see our suffering taken seriously. We need that in Scripture, and we need that in worship. 
Walter Brueggemann has said, it is a curious fact that the church has, by and large, continued to sing songs of orientation in a world increasingly experienced as disoriented. Ben has mentioned, and I can attest as a worship minister, that we need more songs that speak honestly to our suffering. We need more psalms that teach us how to be honest with one another and with God. And if that's what we need to learn, then I think one of the greatest teachers we could find this morning is Psalm 13. And so we're going to turn back to the very first stanza of our text, Psalm 13, just the first two verses this morning, which say, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Psalm 13 is maybe the quintessential lament psalm. This is just the clearest, purest example of the genre in Scripture. And it's amazing the, the dimensions that are present here in this psalm. Uh, because if you look at the text, we've got, first we've got the psychological dimension. The psychological or personal, where we're talking about wrestling with our thoughts, wrestling with sorrow in our hearts day after day after day. There's no shiny veneer over Psalm 13. We really get a, a glimpse inside this internal psychological conflict. But there's also the sociological dimension. Right? Notice the, the social. He talks about this enemy triumphing over him. There's not just the internal conflict and pressure, but there are external threats at play in Psalm 13. And then thirdly, most importantly, there's the theological dimension. Notice that, that this psalm begins by being addressed to God. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me, God? We get the psychological, the sociological, and we get the theological. And, and this theological foreboding threat is the most difficult of all. Because we expect to have internal conflict to some extent. We expect to make enemies in this life, to have social and personal conflict. But we don't expect God to hide his face. From God, we expect faithfulness. And yet, in the suffering of the psalmist, we find that God feels very, very hidden. After the death of his son, Dana Joya wrote a poem called Pentecost that I, I wanted to share with you because I think we hear some echoes of, of a kind of psalm-like quality. He writes, Neither the sorrows of afternoon waiting in the silent house, nor the night no sleep relieves when memory repeats its prosecution, nor the morning's ache for dreams illusion, nor any prayers improvised to an unknowable God can extinguish the flame. 
We are not as we were. Death has been our Pentecost, and our innocence consumed by these implacable tongues of fire. Comfort me with stones. Quench my thirst with sand. I offer you this scarred and guilty hand until others mix our ashes. But unlike this poem, which speaks of an unknowable God and prayers improvised to him, the God in Psalm 13 is very much known. Uh, This is not some unknowable God. He might feel hidden, but this is very much the known God of the Israelites. This psalmist uses Yahweh. He uses that name for God given to Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. He is talking to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that he calls my Lord, my God, Yahweh. And so moving into the second stanza in verses 3 and 4, he says, Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. So if, if that first stanza is, is more of a protest... Uh, a complaint acknowledging the pain, we kind of move from protest to, in the second stanza, a petition. And we get these three very strong, very urgent verbs in, in verse 3 there. Look, he says, look, answer, give. Look on me and answer, God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Listen to that urgency. That urgency makes me want to ask, church, do our prayers ever sound like this? Do we come to God with that urgent, honest intimacy? Because if if the Psalms are anything, there are a lot of things to us, but if they're anything, they are God's people's prayer book. This is the place that people have gone, that that God's people have gone for thousands of years to learn how to communicate with God, how to talk to Him with this urgent honesty, calling Him to account, petitioning Him to look, answer, give light. A couple years ago, uh, two pretty unlikely people came together in a cabin in Montana to talk about the Psalms. And one of those people was Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor for decades and an author and eventually became the translator of the message version of the Bible. And the other person who came to the cabin was the lead singer of a band called U2, Bono. So, yes, it's Eugene Peterson, this 80-year-old pastor and this... 80s rock star that come to a cabin to talk about the Psalms. And if it wasn't a real thing, it should at least be a screenplay for a buddy comedy. And I think it, was, it would be a fantastic film. Probably like Christopher Plummer could be in there and Tom Cruise. But it is a real thing. So we don't have to cast it. But they came together to talk about the Psalms. And, and this point that they kept circling, it's a great video, by the way, if you want to look it up. 
they keep coming back to this thing that they admire about the Psalms, and that is the honesty of it. That the Psalms don't have this nice veneer over them. And Bono, as a, as a songwriter and musician, appreciates this raw nature of the text. And Eugene, as a, as a translator, talks about how he actually got started translating the Psalms was by translating one psalm for one single person. He was translating one psalm for a friend, and he says that he was trying to teach this person that praying isn't being nice before God. That, that the psalms are not pretty. They're not nice. They're not smooth. But, but they are they're raw, they're honest, they're brutal. They're intimate with God. And they petition Him to act in our lives. Do we come to God with that kind of raw, brutal, unpretty honesty? Because that's what we see in Psalm 13. But in the third stanza, we have one of these amazing pivots again. In verses 5 and 6, everything changes and we've moved from protest, we've moved to petition, and now we finally, unexpectedly, move to praise. He says in verses 5 and 6, But I trust in your unfailing, in your steadfast love. My heart rejoices in your salvation, and I will sing the Lord's praise, for He has been good to me. One of the joys of Ben's and my job is not just getting to spend a lot of intimate time with Scripture every week, but also getting to spend intimate time with people who've spent intimate time with Scripture. And some of the commentators that I've been spending time with this past week really have kind of a point of contention here because they want to know what has precipitated, caused this change, this dramatic turn from verse 4 to verse 5. You know, how do we get from God, my enemies are going to triumph over me and rejoice, to but I trust in your unfailing love. And so people have disagreed about what has brought about this, this amazing pivot from verse 4 to 5. And so some have said, well, maybe it reflects a material change in the life of the psalmist. Okay, that the psalmist is looking back on an experience of salvation where something has actually changed in their life and they've experienced God's deliverance. But then others will say, no, no, it, it must be that something has changed not in the psalmist's life, but in the psalmist. Uh, that he's not looking back on salvation, but he's now looking forward to salvation. Uh, that, that he has maybe been in kind of a worship type of setting, that a priest has offered this word of salvation, and so there's been a change in the psalmist. That's why we change from four to five so dramatically. And then there are others, and this is going to be the camp where you find me, that see it differently. 
And according to this view, the answer of why such a dramatic turn from four to five is that we don't get one. The answer is that we don't get an answer. We get a text. Because the reality is we don't know exactly what the background is of Psalm 13. We don't have a narration. We don't have a story. We don't have a worship service order laid out. We just don't get an answer on why this dramatic change. But what we do get is a text. And we get this text that declares two uncompromising truths together. The truth that, God, why do you hide your face from me? And at the same time, I trust in your unfailing love. We get, God, I'm suffering with my thoughts and with my heart all day long. I rejoice in your salvation. God, my enemy is going to triumph over me. My enemy is going to rejoice when I fall. But I rejoice in your salvation. And isn't that precisely the place that many of us have had to live at times? Isn't that precisely the tension we've had to embody for days, seasons, lifetimes at a time? This tension between God, day after day, sorrow in my heart. God, I trust in your unfailing love tension of Psalm 13. One of the movies that hit me at the right time growing up and has remained one of my favorites is The Count of Monte Cristo. And if you've seen that movie or read that book, uh, you know it's about a man named Edmund Dantes who under false pretenses is uh, put in prison. He's betrayed and thrown in this French prison far away on a cliffside called the Chateau d'If. And he gets into his little grimy prison cell, and on one of the walls are inscribed five words, God will give me justice. And so day after day, year after year, he is in this prison, and he is whipped, he's beaten, he's essentially starved. And yet, through the years, through this time lapse, we see him picking up a little stone and re-inscribing on the wall, God will give me justice. God will give me justice. God will give me justice. And this morning, I see our psalmist sitting in a prison cell of suffering sitting in a prison cell of suffering and taking that wall that is one of the literal sites and sources of his captivity, of his suffering, and making that a canvas of hope. Picking up that rock and re-inscribing, I trust in your unfailing love. I trust in your unfailing love. I trust in your unfailing love. 
And hasn't that been all of us as well? You may not be there this morning. You may have been there. You may be there one day. Or maybe, like many of us, you are there this morning and you feel as though you're in a prison cell of suffering. That maybe uh, a person or a tragic event has thrust you into captivity. Or maybe it's anxiety or fear or guilt or depression or even suicidal thoughts. And you feel trapped. Or maybe like all of us at times, we have even, in a sense, jailed ourselves by turning to sin and turning away from God's good for us. But regardless of whether you're clutching on to the enemy or you're in the enemy's clutches, you're in this prison cell of suffering. And the thing about being in a prison cell is the way out never seems clear. The way out never seems certain or even plausible or possible because the bars are too strong, the chains are too heavy, and the walls are just too thick. But Psalm 13 is here this morning. And it's here to tell you that the steadfast love of God can lead you out. Amen? Psalm 13 is here to tell you this morning that our God is a chain breaker. He is no respecter of walls. He is the one who rattles the foundations of the jail and and bursts the door open and leads you out into freedom, into salvation. You might feel like you're in a prison cell of, of suffering. That, that the enemy has thrown the key to hell, but Jesus Christ has descended into hell. And, and he holds the keys in his hand. And Jesus Christ on the cross endured a Psalm 13 kind of suffering. Jesus Christ took on sorrow, pain in his thoughts, in his heart, in his mind, in his body. And then God raised that body up from the dead. And guess what? He wants to do that for you. God wants to lead you to rejoice in his salvation. To be freed. And even if you have to declare it in the midst of the suffering, even if you have to write it on the wall, I trust in your unfailing love. have to do, then we will because God has been good to us. He's dealt bountifully and he will deal bountifully. John Calvin said of Psalm 13 that the world may threaten us with a thousand deaths, yet God is possessed of numberless means of restoring us to life. Church, his life is on the way, and we've got to be the ones to remind each other of that. 
We gotta be the ones to, to reach in when someone's in suffering, in isolation, when they're cloistered, when they feel trapped. We've gotta remind each other of rejoicing in the salvation, and we begin to remind each other of that every time we sing and worship the God of our fathers, the God of our mothers, of our ancestors. God of steadfast love. Let's stand and begin to remind one another of that salvation this morning.